2 Samuel 18, and we'll read uh, up until uh, chapter 19, verse 8. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittite, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate, whilst all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Etai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to, to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss was the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servant of David. Absalom was riding on a mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and the earth, whilst the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, If I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hands and thrust them into the heart of Absalom whilst he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. And Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and and threw him 
into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Haimez, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hands of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. And Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what, what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Haimez, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you would have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Haimez ran by the way of the plain and outran, outran the Cushites. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gates by the wall. And when he lifted his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he's alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, And the watchman called to the gate and and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Hamez, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He's a good man and comes with good news. Then Hamez cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hands against my Lord, the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Haimez answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hands of all all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies, my lord, the the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved 
and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son? It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping, moaning for Absalom. So the victory that that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day, as people still in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the face of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your son and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, that then then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, Not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. Some of us will know that my favorite way of starting an interview is to play the game, would you rather? Would you rather? Key to the game, you have to choose one or the other. So, for example, would you rather um, hair for teeth or teeth for hair? You get the idea. Uh, The thing is, I like the game because um, you find out something of people's priorities. Would you rather one thing over another? Well, here's this morning's would you rather. Would you rather love or justice? Love or justice. I suspect we'd answer slightly differently depending on circumstances. Uh, when we're in trouble or perhaps our loved one is bending justice, then we'd far rather choose love to triumph, maybe the judge to be particularly kind that day. However, however when we are wronged and the deep inner sense of justice will demand in us that justice reigns over love. Love or justice, which should come first? It all depends, doesn't it? And that is the tension that our passage has at its core today. David loves his son Absalom. But Absalom is more than just David's son. He is the treacherous enemy who is threatening to rip the kingdom from the king's hands. Love demands a gentle approach. Justice demands to treat him as a traitor and to kill him. How can love and justice meet? These chapters are here to show us that we need a solution to this specific tension. 
Uh, This ending of 2 Samuel should leave us with a very bitter taste in the mouth. We are at the climax of this story of David. Uh, Next week, we're going to have this four-chapter epilogue, which we have the joy of enjoying for next week. But this, this is the end of the actual story. And what we might expect is a happy ever after ending. Certainly on the most basic level, David does return to Jerusalem with his rival defeated. But as Imogen helped us see, things are far more complicated than just that. This isn't a happy ever after ending at all. This is a story that ends in tension. Everything has changed, and everything's changed for the worse. Let's feel some of this story. Uh, Chapter 18, it starts with two armies lined up against each other to battle. Chapter 17, one side, um, verse 24, Absalom has all the men of Israel. It's big, it's massive, it's the enemy. And David has a much smaller yet seemingly more professional army. Chapter 18, verse 3. King David was told not to march with his army. Fair enough. Uh, The logic, the king was far too valuable to risk losing. Besides anything, last time they marched in battle, chapter 11, David was in bed. And we all know how that ended up. It's what has led to this mess in the first place. So verse 4, David agrees to staying behind. But David has one key speech he wants to give his men. And in this moment, we might imagine a rousing, Braveheart-esque speech. You know, that to inspire and ignite passion and a, a sense of duty to the crown, which is so under threat from this traitor. But no, David is not at all anxious about winning. Verse 5, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. I wonder how the three army generals reacted to that. Are you joking, David? That's the commander of the treacherous army that we're trying to stop from taking your throne, David. What do you want us to do? Fight with foam swords? Of course, verse 5 says that this was the king who spoke. But clearly, these are a father's words. Absalom was a traitor and a killer who deserved to die. That would be justice. But Absalom was loved by his father. Love demanded just gentleness. Notice how David tries to persuade his commanders. Not because Absalom deserves it. That cannot be argued. But for my sake. In other words, but for the sake of the father who loves him. Who always saw his wee little boy as the young man, Absalom. Do you feel the conflict? The demands of justice and the requirements of love are head to head. Does David sound sentimental and weak? Perhaps. Does David, does David sound like he can't execute justice and righteousness? Certainly. David's love for his wee boy would not bow to the demands of justice. So they head into battle. Now, we would have thought this battle was really quite crucial, But notice the battle itself is described relatively briefly in verses 6 to 8. Just three verses. David's loyal servants won, by the way. But the author and David's attentions, they lie elsewhere. And so our gaze is almost immediately focused on the young man, Absalom. Verse 9, this pretender to the throne. He was riding a mule, the, the royal mode of transport back then. 
And as he tried to escape a, a group of David's men, he comically and rather tragically is wedged in an oak tree. His mule continues on without him, and so Absalom's kingship disappears symbolically from under him. <laughs> the scene is humiliating. Absalom dangled between heaven and earth, helpless and powerless. He was, as with so many others that day, captured by the forest. And Absalom's humiliation was witnessed by just one lone, loyal servant of David to start with. King David's words, they're hanging in this individual's mind, who is seemingly a little stunned. What to do now? As he looks up at public enemy number one, he, he actually remembers David's words and he fears David. Verse 12, he heard what David said to the commanders. All Israel did, actually. And he can even repeat verse 5, word for word. For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. How could he go against his king's words? Even when put under pressure from Joab, in the next few verses. But Joab had no such scruples. When he finds out, he knew what he had to do. Firstly, he knew that Absalom deserved to die. And secondly, he knew that for David's kingdom to be secure, he had to, do, to die. So grabbing, grabbing three javelins, literally three sticks, he thrust them into Absalom's heart. Absalom's dead. Victory is secured. Verse 16, Joab blows the trumpet and restrains further bloodshed. Joab knew that this act would stand down the rebellious Israel and serve the greater good of the kingdom. The war is over. Absalom, who, verse 18, built a monument for himself, how pretentious, is verse 17 giving a traitor's burial. And understanding Joab is a slightly complicated game. This wasn't a simple right or wrong. Joab had a deep sense of justice. He saw David's love for Absalom as a dangerous weakness. And so he disobeyed his king. In the death of Absalom, justice triumphed over love. But if David had his way, well, love would have triumphed over justice. Are we feeling the tension more and more? How would David respond when he hears this news? And Joab knows precisely how this is going to play out. Notice just how slowly the writer draws out the delivery of the news as we patiently wait to see how David will respond. The tension's just building, and it makes David's reaction much more striking when we eventually hear it at the end of the chapter. Who will deliver the news? Ahimaz puts up his hand straight away. He desperately wants to be part of this historic, victorious moment as he saw it. But Joab is shrewd. Verse 21, Joab selects a foreigner not to communicate the victory, but what he has seen, the events must be presented to the king as plainly and straightforwardly as possible in Joab's eyes. Joab knows how delicate this moment might be. Just tell David straight. But verse 22, Ahimaz 
He's so persistent, isn't he? He, he basically says, pretty please. And so eventually, off he's sent in, in addition to the Kushite. And so the running race is on. And then the scene flips in verse 24 from the bloodied battle scene to David's private gates of his palatial city. And despite this Cushite's head start, Ahimez won the race and he arrives first and he calls out from a distance. Verse 28, all is well, literally shalom, peace. And when he got closer, the fuller message comes out. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the King. It's the general good news of victory. We can see why Ahimez was so keen to win the race especially because he seems ignorant when asked a more specific question. King David still wants the particular news, doesn't he? Verse 29, is it well with the young man Absalom? Literally, is Shalom with Absalom? And the reply is a surprise. Ahimez doesn't know. Perhaps he'd only heard the trumpet. But he wasn't a witness to Absalom hanging between heaven and earth and what followed. The conversation, though, with the Cushites, once he arrives, it's almost identical to begin with, isn't it? But he knows the particulars that Ahimez didn't. And so the same particular question from David comes again, verse 32, is Shalom with Absalom? May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. He's diplomatic, but unambiguous. And what follows in verse 33 is one of the most moving verses in the whole Bible. Just remember, this is the great lyricist and psalmist David, who had words to describe pain better than anyone that I've ever met. And this is all he can muster. Verse 33. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The distress of a father is heartbreaking to eavesdrop on. But David's love, it was helpless in saving Absalom from the consequences of his rebellion. See, Joab felt justice had won. And in a political sense, of course, he is right. But you and I know that politics isn't everything. And we're seeing here, up close and personal, the problem that David's kingdom could never resolve. David's love wanted to deal gently with Absalom. Joab's justice demanded his execution as a traitor. David can't square the issue. In his desperation, he even grasps at this idea of dying in his son's place. Would that I had died instead of you. But of course, what good would that have done? A sinner dying for a sinner? It wouldn't have changed a thing. Arguably, it would have plunged his kingdom into deeper problems still. Little did David know how poignant his words would one day become. And it's striking how David's response changes the whole victory from victory 
to mourning. The victory turns to mourning. Chapter 19, verse 2. The victory that day was turned into mourning. Basically, pack up the street party and put on the black tie. Verse 3, the people thought they were returning to victory parades, but they have to steal in with shame, tails between their legs. I mean, just think of this. These are the men who wept with the king in chapter 15 as together they climbed the Mount of Olives and fled Jerusalem. But that was different. Back then, they shared David's sorrow at losing the kingdom. Now, they're just humiliated. Their victory has caused their own king's grief. Everybody knew, verse 4, the king is inconsolable as he wailed over and over. His love for Absalom had been so great. As was his way, Joab sees the injustice of the whole situation. And so he takes matters into his own hands yet again. And like most angry arguments, his logic starts spot on and gradually descends into harshness. Verse 5, he tells the king off. You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Job's right. David's servants have saved his whole household. Instead of praise and thanks, they are forced into being ashamed of themselves. And verse 6, Job turns up the heat and applies some logic, which we might feel is just a little harsh. Verse 6, why has this happened? Because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. And this is a caricature, perhaps, but there's definitely truth in here. Let's see it. I mean, Absalom did hate his father, David, and David loved his son. So the first half... It's spot on, isn't it? You love those who hate you. But the second half is where Job implies logic. David's servants obviously loved David, but did David hate his servants? Surely this is interpreting David's actions so uncharitably. He's a grieving father. David's mistreatment of his servants doesn't mean that he necessarily hates them that we might feel is an overstatement of sorts. Yet Job has more to say. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. It's worth recalling uh, the logic of David's men from chapter 18, verse 3. To his loyal fighters, David was worth 10,000 men. Now it's implied that all the men are worth less than Absalom to David. And in a sense, there is truth there. David is putting his needs of a father above his justice as the king, as their king. If David were just a man, just a man and not a king, then maybe we'd sympathize endlessly with him. But this is God's king. And he has a duty to his people, does he not? 
In David's pursuit of love for Absalom, he neglects the kingdom and fails to love his loyal people. Isn't that such an interesting dynamic? As a loving father, he maybe now stops being a loving king. His love actually wasn't enough. I wonder, are we sad for David? A little, perhaps. But are we also angry at David? A little also, perhaps. David was willing to compromise the loyal 10,000 for one traitor. He forced the loyal to slink back into the city as if they'd done something so wrong. The truth is, David's love for Absalom was not able to save the rebel from Joab's justice. But Joab's sense of justice, it had no space for David's love for his son. The situation? Impossible. Joab forces David then to face the troops. He might lose the whole kingdom otherwise. Show them that you actually love them is really what he's saying. Literally, he says, go out and speak to the hearts of your servants. Joab knows the men need David's love too. And what follows in the rest of chapter 19, which I'm afraid we have so little time for, it's an almost perfect retracing of the steps from chapter 15, where where David crossed over the Jordan. So now David, he returns to Jerusalem, and every individual he met on the way is repeated in reverse. The trouble is, it's all hollow, shallow, and empty. David is often hoodwinked and lied to. There's no peace. And the kingdom, it's never the same again. It all feels plastic and fragile now. No wonder the king can't administer justice. And Joab, the political player, is willing, well, to even murder again. Amasa, uh, this is the guy that David wants to replace Joab with. Let's look at this very quickly. Look at chapter 19, verse 13. David's saying, that he says to Amasa, Are you, Amasa, not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. See what he's saying? David is saying, Amasa, I want you doing Joab's job from now on. We can maybe understand why. But let's see how Joab feels about all this. Okay, let's turn over the page. Chapter 20, verse 10. Chapter 20, verse 10. Joab here, he, he has Amasa by the beard. And what does he do? He surprisingly, well, he, he spills his guts. Joab is almost out of control. He murders the man who David wants to replace Joab as commander of the army. Joab is the muscle man who David now doesn't want in power anymore, but David can do nothing about. And so the narrator shows us just how plastic this kingdom has has become in this final conclusion. Um, The the last verses of chapter 20, um, and these these verses, they echo um, the summary back in chapter 8. Chapter 8, it was the high point of the kingdom. Um, Here now, we're at the bottom of the kingdom. I've laid out the verses on your handouts so you don't have to flick between chapter 8 and chapter 20 between these two chapters in our Bibles. And hopefully you can see on the, on the handout the way I've laid them out. It's really easy to spot the differences. 
I've greyed out the texts, which I think um, have no significant differences to help us see the really key bits. But notice the big differences, they lie in the gaps in the handout. Uh, Crucially, the fact that David isn't even listed as king is jaw-dropping, isn't it? And look at what's just missing there from chapter 8. From the narrator's point of view, it's what we've been saying all morning. There is no justice or equity in David's kingdom anymore. Like there was back in chapter 8. All of that from chapter 8 is now a very distant memory. What's more, look at the other gap further down. The addition in chapter 20 from chapter 8 is Adoram, who's in charge of something new. What's the new initiative? Forced labor. Hardly a positive addition. Some kind of slavery has crept in. And you know what? This will become the catalyst in the book of Kings that destroys the alliance of Israel entirely and splits the whole nation apart. Justice has evaporated. There are other significant differences. Um, we'll, we'll look at them very quickly, like Joab, who was still commander over the army, despite David's wishes, like we've just observed, to the contrary. Uh, David can't control the self-assured hitman Joab, and Joab seems to be in charge, basically now. And it's also very striking, isn't it, that David's sons, at the bottom now, are, they're no longer priests, mainly because they've been busy killing each other for the last chapters in between. But do you see the point? Do you feel the point? The kingdom is a shell of what it was before. Back in chapter 8, the list, it was testament to the order and to justice. The list in chapter 20 is just a description of the recovered remnants who didn't get massacred in the onslaught of the last dozen chapters. David's sin, it had undermined everything. And Joab's brute force did nothing to retrieve it. This is a tragic moment in biblical history. The kingdom would never truly be the same again. There could never be a recovery. And so we land in this place of tension. Uh, We've seen David's clear love, and we felt Joab's justice for a desire for justice. And David, he can only cry in the tension. He was unable to square the love and justice puzzle. Of course, it it took a thousand years before the puzzle would be solved. But with a God who is perfect love and a God who is also perfect justice, surely they were to look to him alone for the solution, to their rock, to their fortress, to their deliverer. And they were to trust in his promise for a future king from David's line. 2 Samuel 7 taught us that so clearly, didn't it? That and that alone is humanity's only hope. One of the most sublime aspects of Jesus' work on the cross, a thousand years after David lived, is that he squared the love and justice problem. 
as our song, song will put it, um, that we're about to sing. At the cross of Jesus, pardon is complete. Love and justice mingle. Truth and mercy meet. God is love and God is just. His plan, it was always to find a way where love and justice can meet and coexist in perfect harmony. And the bitter taste of these chapters, they're designed to show us what we really, truly, desperately need. We need a king, a king who can love and love us justly. See, when asked, would you rather love or justice? Jesus says, I'll have both in equal measure. Thank you very much. What an amazing king we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read these chapters and feel the pain of David and Joab almost missing each other, we're so thankful that, that we have a king that was so unlike David in this moment, who when he looks at his people, truly loves them and knows the way of stepping into their place to die for them in a way that David could barely reach for as an idea. Thank you, Father, so much that King Jesus can love and do it so justly. We, we praise you so much for him. And we're so thankful that these chapters show us the whole, show us the, the shape of the Lord Jesus in so many ways. And we give you great thanks that you have, in your wisdom, by your spirit, breathed out these chapters so that we understand the need all the more desperately. And we can be so much more appreciative of the Lord Jesus. We praise you so much for these chapters. Amen.